0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 285 of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is Purpose to the Pain, an interview with Jill Wickner. In this moving interview, Jill describes how she went from being a healthy individual to almost instantly becoming debilitated from Lyme disease, Babesia, and Bartonella. Jill uses such precise language to describe exactly how she felt both physically and mentally before she got diagnosed, once she got diagnosed, and during her treatment journey. She describes in great detail exactly what she did to get her health back. Today, Jill is the director, vice president, and board member of the Pennsylvania Lyme Resource Network. Jill and her group have coined the term Purpose to the Pain to identify what they do to give back to the community, not only in Pennsylvania, but throughout the world. So without further ado, Jill Wickner in Purpose to the pain.
1: Hey, Jill Wickner and welcome to the Tick Camp podcast.
2: Hi, thank you so much. I'm happy to be
1: here. So Jill, before we get started uh, on digging into uh, the story of Jill Wickner and her Lyme disease journey, can you talk to us just quickly uh, about the Pennsylvania Lyme Resource Network?
2: Sure. So um, we are a Pennsylvania nonprofit, and uh, we formed in 2012, and we're dedicated to Lyme disease prevention, education, patient support, and advocacy. And everyone in our group has had experience with Lyme disease, either directly or someone close to them has had it. And we know how debilitating this disease is and how it affects lives. And that basically fuels everything we do.
1: I want to thank you before we even take another step forward for the great work that you and your organization are doing. Matt and I have been big fans of yours since we started working together and you've always been a great resource for us. We wanna thank you uh, for all the great work that you're doing.
2: Oh, Thank you so much. We're fans of yours as well. So thank you too.
1: So it's great that we finally been able to get together because uh, we've been targeting you for interview for a long time. And we finally were able to uh, locate a date and time that works for all of us. So why don't you give us some background about you? Where, where are you from? Uh, where did you grow up? And what was it like to grow up uh, as young Jill?
2: Oh, well, uh, I was born in Philly and I grew up in Bucks County. So about 30 minutes outside of Philadelphia. And and it was good. I had I had a happy childhood, very active. I just remember, you know, always being outside and and doing fun things and I loved school. Um, well, eventually <laughs> that turned somewhere down the line. Um, but yeah, I just it was it was it was fun growing
1: up. So, talk to us about what your community was like. Was it an urban community? Was it a suburban community or was it more of a rural community?
2: I grew up in the suburbs. Um, lots and lots of kids, my age, um, I love the neighborhood I grew up in because it was, it was big and there were just so many kids in that one neighborhood who I went to school with, who I became friends with. So it was, it was a lot of fun. There was always a lot going on for kids to enjoy.
1: So you shared with us that you were an outdoorsy child. Um, Mm -hmm. talk to us about what kinds of things you were doing in the outdoors and, uh, what kind of precautions you took to keep yourself safe or what kind of precautions your parents offered to you to keep yourself safe.
2: Um, so as a kid, I mean, everything from just being outside bike riding, skateboarding, roller skating, I went to summer camp every summer. So you're just, you're constantly outside anything water related. I loved. Um, but as a kid, I, I don't remember ever knowing anything about ticks and Lyme disease. I don't remember hearing anything about that. Um, I don't remember hearing anything from my parents about that. So the only you know, outdoor protection that I remember as a kid is is spraying for mosquitoes. And and that was pretty much it. So, you know, to think back and and to just think about how many times, you know, I'm rolling through the grass, you know, rolling down hills and being outdoors, I'm shocked that I didn't get sick until I was an adult.
1: Well, we'll talk about that when we get there. Yeah. So um Talk to us about what it is that you thought you'd be doing with your life during your childhood, meaning what were you working toward?
2: Um, as a child, what was I working towards? You know, <laughs> you know, it's funny. And I still remember in my fifth grade yearbook, when, when they asked us where we want to be in 20 years, I remember I, I had written, I will be a singer and dancer married with no kids. That was my prediction for my life. And I, I nailed one out of three, uh, one, uh, one of those. <laughs> I got one out of four in that I'm married, can't sing, can't dance. Um, but yeah, I, I'm not, I wasn't a kid who just knew what she wanted to be when she grew up. That was never the case. I really wasn't sure what I wanted to do. Um, what I did do, and this, it's ironic how it turned out, I was always in love with words and reading, and writing, and getting lost in books and stories, Um, so as an adult becoming a writer, that, you know, it's interesting how that happened, but yeah, I wasn't really clear on that as a kid.
1: Well, but does it really happen, or were you made with a certain set of skills and creativity that you were learning about during your childhood, and ultimately, you sort of find yourself in the place where you always were meant to be?
2: You know, I, I don't know. I I really don't know. I I do remember my parents were always encouraging of me to read. We were, you know, at the library every week, taking out new books at the local library. So, you know, that's something that I've just always loved and gravitated towards. But yeah, I I don't know.
1: All right. So talk to us about uh, what kinds of things you started to pursue, you know, as you moved out of being a geek and going to the library and you started (laughs) to, uh, you started to, uh, Um, you know, started to move on with your life and graduated from high school?
2: Um, So after that, um, I did a little more school. I, you know, I I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do, who I wanted to be, you know, just trying to get clear on those things. Um, I was someone who loved to just try to help people however I could and get involved in community in that way. And, and as I went, I, I, I eventually, you know, I got a job, um, you know, I had, I had several, but then I eventually worked for a big pharmaceutical company and I was there for over 10 years and it just, it was a good job, but it just wasn't, it wasn't bringing me any, it wasn't a happy place. It wasn't bringing me any joy. It was just a job to bring in an income, have insurance coverage and health benefits and, and have a, you know, have a paycheck, but.
1: Yeah. What what a surprise.
2: Right. Um,
1: The young gal who had this talent for writing and ultimately finds herself working for a not-for-profit in the Lyme community didn't have a good experience working at Big Pharma. What a shock. Right. (laughs) So uh, talk to us about when you first started to um, feel the symptoms of what you now know to be uh, your Lyme disease.
2: So I, you know, my husband and I, I think this was 2007, Uh, We were on a cruise, and we cruised, um, it was Bermuda and Eastern Caribbean, and at one point during the cruise, I happened to walk by, um, in our cabin, I walked by one of those angled mirrors, and I just happened to catch a glimpse of the back of my arm, and I saw what I now know to be a bullseye rash, and I had never seen anything like it, and I didn't know what it was, so I took a picture of it. I thought, all right, I'm going to take a picture. I actually had a routine appointment scheduled already with my doctor soon after we were due to get home. So I took the picture and I forgot about it. Um, I went to the doctor probably a couple of weeks after vacation and I brought my camera and I showed the doctor the picture. And this is a very reputable doctor. Um, I showed him the picture and he said, no, you have nothing to worry about. And I, at that time, I still didn't know much of anything about Lyme disease, but I had heard something once about a bullseye rash. So I asked him about that. And I asked to that tie in to ticks and Lyme disease. And is that something we should look further into or look into at all? And the doctor told me that there are no ticks where you were cruising to. He said, there aren't ticks in Bermuda. There aren't ticks in the Caribbean. And I said, well, there are ticks in New Jersey. And that's where I sailed from. And I live in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. Um, He told me just basically to forget about it. And he said that if if it had been a tick bite, I would have already been symptomatic. And at the time, and this this is something uh, I look back on a lot. Um, I thought, this is a reputable doctor and who am I to question him? And I usually, I'm, I'm, I'm over analytical about things. I tend to overthink things, but I thought, okay, he said, I'm fine and I forgot about it. And it was about, I think about 10 months later, that I was sitting in work um, and I was at my desk and it was like someone flipped a switch. I was fine that day. And all of a sudden out of the blue, I was extremely dizzy. My vision became impaired. I was, I was shaking. I became very anxious. Um, I very, very weak. And I remember standing up and I went to go to walk to the ladies room and I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't keep my balance. And I had to ask my manager if she would please walk with me to help keep me steady. And that's what kicked it all off. And, and remember, so much time had passed. I had forgotten about, about the bite and the, and the rash. And uh, the very next day, I was in the hospital where I, okay. stayed for, I stayed for about a week and had doctor after doctor tell me that uh, that it was just anxiety and it was all in my head and I was fine.
1: So let's pause there for a second i want to go back and unpack some of the earlier issues that that you raised with us so let's talk about the tick bite or the bullseye rash right so Mm -hmm. um you're you're on a cruise when you saw the bullseye but where did you come from before you went on the cruise were you living in new jersey were you living in pennsylvania like where were you living before you went on that cruise
2: um i was i was living in, in bucks county i was living in pennsylvania I went to, the, you know, I'd be walking at the park all the time and outside a lot.
1: And where was the doctor that you went for uh, treatment physically located after you had come back from your your cruise uh, and you showed him a picture of the uh, bullseye rash?
2: He, He was a local doctor in Bucks County.
1: All right. So you're a gal from Pennsylvania, which we all know is the Lyme disease capital of the world. You go to a doctor who's treating people in the Lyme disease capital of the world. You show the doctor a bullseye rash, and the doctor tells you you have nothing to worry about.
2: I had nothing to worry about. Go home. Forget about it.
1: So, how does it make you feel that a reputable doctor who's treating people on the East Coast in the line belt of, uh, of, of of you know of, of the U.S. Um, Lyme belt? Um, how does it feel, you know, in retrospect? to have a doctor so incompetently um, take the information you had, he had given you and tell you had nothing to worry about.
2: Oh, it was infuriating. I mean, it was just dumbfounding. Once I came to learn about it and educate myself and, and realize what was going on, it was absolutely infuriating because had I been led in the right direction then, before I even had symptoms, I very likely would have avoided becoming chronic and my life would have, would have stayed in a much better direction.
1: All right, now let's talk about the educational system in Pennsylvania and uh, you know, the culture in which you had grown up in,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? So um, again, you grew up in Pennsylvania. Uh, you're clearly a very smart woman and you, you clearly had a very solid educational foundation. You're also a geek who went to the library all the time with her parents, right? So I mean, it, it's not like you didn't have a lot of uh, capacity Yet you knew nothing about a bullseye rash and you knew nothing about ticks and tick diseases at the time that you had taken the picture on your arm.
2: It was it's amazing to to look back and think about that now, Um, not only being a a Bucks County resident in a state that is typically number one in incidences of Lyme disease and tick-borne illness, but also as someone who went to camp every summer. I mean, you would have thinks you would think somewhere along the way. Camp counselors and directors would be aware of this, you know, maybe teachers, school nurses, certainly your doctors, certainly your very reputable doctor <laughs> should know about this. So it's it's the, the lack of education around this, the fact that this isn't something that would have been the first thing the doctor would have talked to me about is is astounding.
1: So you were failed by your doctor. Um, you were failed by the educational system that you had um, you had benefited from in so many other ways. Uh, you were quite frankly failed by the culture that you grew up in because you know you were never taught about ticks and tick diseases. Um, and had any of those pieces been put in place, either a competent doctor, an educational system that helped you to be health literate, or a um, you know or a family environment where they were aware of ticks and tick diseases, and you learned this through, you know, your, your upbringing, you wouldn't, you probably would have never become chronically ill. That, that's true. I believe that. So let's talk about how things progressed or digressed from there. Is probably a better term. So you, you have this, you have this moment where your body's saying, no, you're crashing. You need to have a manager walk you to the bathroom. Uh, what happens from there?
2: Um, I wound up, um, I don't know how I drove myself home that day. I, I really don't. I mean, I probably had about a 40-some minute drive home. And, and I, if I'm remembering correctly, I think I went to a coworker's office who was out that day and sat with an ice pack on the back of my neck, put my head down on her desk, and just tried to pull myself together so that I can get myself home, which I eventually did. And then everything, the symptoms just intensified to the point where- I, I wound up in the hospital the next day. I could barely walk. I had dark, dark circles under my eyes. My entire complexion was different. I, I looked gray. It's like in the matter, in fewer than 24 hours, I, I practically looked like a different person. It was unbelievable how quickly it escalated.
1: So your body's shutting down, right? You go to the yeah. hospital, you see a whole bunch of doctors. Again, a hospital in Pennsylvania,
2: mm-hmm.
1: right? Yes. So a state you where you would expect that... You would have Lyme literate doctors everywhere and anywhere, right? How many different doctors did you see when you were in the hospital with these with these very difficult symptoms?
2: I wow. I mean, several, several doctors. I mean, probably, probably five or six doctors. They they were running all sorts of tests. First, they said that it was urinary tract infection, although I had no symptoms of that. Uh, they put me on. IV antibiotics for that, which turned out not to be the problem. Um, I was, you know, I was even made to feel guilty that they had to run so many expensive tests. I mean, I'm lying in this bed day after day for a week. I couldn't even walk down the hall to use the restroom. They had to bring in, I mean, basically a bucket, you know, a portable a portable toilet. It was, I mean, I was just, uh, I, I didn't recognize myself in the mirror. I could barely function. And doctor after doctor came in. They were checking for everything, and and they couldn't find anything. And at no point did anyone mention Lyme disease.
1: So, in fact, because all of their diagnostic tests turned up nothing, mm-hmm. and they didn't use even the really unreliable Lyme disease tests that had existed at the time, or even exist till today, um, they came to the conclusion that there was nothing wrong with you. Right. Right. You were crazy. It was all in my head. All right. So um, do you ultimately at least um, feel well enough to leave the hospital?
2: By the end of the week, I, I, I think I remember feeling a little better. I was able to go home, but for the most part, nothing had changed. It was you know, it it felt like there was a lot of ego that I was dealing with too. You know, I was being spoken to in a way where it's, you know, oh, and women tend to have a lot of stress and, you know, I'm sure you just need to relax. And I was, you know, it felt as if because the doctors couldn't figure it out, I was making it up. That's how I felt. That's how I felt at the time. And And I know, you know, there were also very nice doctors working with me and I know they were trying to figure things out, but looking back and knowing that I'm coming from a place where Lyme disease is so prevalent, I just, I couldn't believe that I was just basically dismissed. And then, you know.
1: Yes. And isn't it interesting that, you know, we're, we're really not put in a position where we can develop health literacy because we don't need to, we don't need to be health literate because we have all these wonderful doctors that if there's something wrong with us and we have a little... Something or another, we're going to walk to the doctor's office. They're going to quickly diagnose us. They're going to give us a quick solution, we're probably from Big Pharma, your your uh, your former employer, and um, and we you know so we so we you know we sort of rely on these folks to diagnose and treat us. When they can't diagnose and treat us, they tell us you're crazy. We have all the answers. If you don't have a you know if you don't have a problem that we can define with our tests, then you're crazy, right? Right. And at no time during this experience that you had in this hospital, you saw a whole score of doctors and you had the million dollar workup, which by the way, Matt had exactly the same experience. So they told me, had the million dollar workup, there's nothing wrong with you. Um, you're sent home and no one ever says the word lying to you. Nope.
2: No one ever said the word.
1: So how do things go from there? You're released from the hospital and what happens?
2: Uh, so my symptoms were getting worse. I was um, on short-term disability for work because clearly I couldn't go back. Um, more symptoms were popping up. So I started, um, you know, I created a little Word document where I just had a bullet list of symptoms that I was tracking. And my husband was helping me to do this when I couldn't because my vision was blurry. I just, you know, I couldn't think straight. And it was difficult to read. It was difficult to, to process what I what I was seeing. Um, eventually I, I went back to, um, to the doctor's office. And at that point there was a different doctor there. And it was, it was almost a repeat where he, he actually looked at me and looked me up and down and said, well, I mean, you're young and you look fine, which was unbelievable. I mean, I, I, I tell people I looked like I had narrowly escaped a zombie apocalypse. I mean, it was Anyone with half a brain cell would see that there was something seriously wrong. And when my husband and I left and he practically carried me out of there, um, I immediately called back and I spoke to somebody else. And I'm not someone who calls and complains about things, but this was my health, this was my life. Something was seriously wrong. And doing that, I spoke to the physician's assistant there and she wanted me to come back. And she told me, you know, I know this is not all in your head, there's clearly something wrong here. And I want to run some tests. And she is the one who said, I want to test you for Lyme disease. Um, so and she how did.
1: did that, how, how did that go? So you, you, you finally have someone, uh, and I do want to, I do want to look at this contrast for a minute. You, you finally have someone who says, I believe you. I know you're not making this up. We're not going to just ignore your symptoms because you're an attractive woman who looks good, we're now going to listen to you. What was the difference between the PA who finally said, I'm going to listen and the score of doctors that you saw before that who wouldn't listen?
2: Oh, I mean, it was, it was night and day. And even though I was still terrified because that's not identifying or fixing the problem yet, just having someone look at me, look me in the eyes and say, I know you're not crazy and I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to figure this out with you that, that meant everything because I think as anyone who's dealt with this will know it's, it's so confusing and scary for patients and there's so much conflicting information. And even just amongst the doctors, dude, when I was in the hospital, I would have one doctor telling me one thing and another telling me something else. So to have someone say, we're really going to look into this, that it was a huge relief, even though I was still terrified because I didn't know what was wrong.
1: So do you think the difference between the person who listened to you and said, we're going to do something and the, and the people before that that didn't was just simply intellectual laziness, that they were all intellectually lazy and she was somebody who sort of had an inquisitive mind and was willing to try to figure it out?
2: Yeah, you know, I, I, I don't know for sure. I mean, it certainly felt that way at times. And, you know, I certainly wouldn't want to criticize a doctor who truly is trying to help his or her patient. Um, but when you have a patient come in who looked like I did, had the symptoms that I had, was clearly seriously ill, and you're being told you're stressed, you're crazy, you're looking for time off work, it's a, it's a woman thing. I mean, that's unacceptable. So hearing this physician's assistant actually care more about wanting to get to the problem than make accusations because she doesn't want to admit she doesn't know what's happening, <laughs> that, that was that was the turning point.
1: So Jill, you did share with us that the two doctors that you had seen in the private office were both male doctors, and this physician assistant was a female. Mm-hmm. What about the doctors that you saw at the hospital? Were most of those doctors male as well?
2: Um, I I think that they were, but I I mean, I saw other doctors along the way too, both male and female, and, and I dealt with a lot of the same. Um, the majority were men, but... Um, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't know if that has anything to do with it, but um, I'm just glad that someone, I, I wouldn't have cared who it is. <laughs> you, know, you just want someone, anyone to, to get that answer for you.
1: Well, you know, look, one of the things we've seen, Jill, and, and it's just irrefutable, is that women have a different journey than men. Mm-hmm. And, and, and part of it is just the way the medical system treats women generally. Mm-hmm. And some of it has to do with other factors, Um, and, and, you know, we, we strongly have come to the conclusion or we strongly believe, I should say that one of the reasons why we, we find ourselves interviewing a greater number of women than we do men is because the medical system treats you differently from a diagnostic and a treatment standpoint. And I'm just wondering whether or not you found, um, that the women that you worked with treated you differently than the men did.
2: Um, in the case of the physician's assistant, yes. However, the next doctor who I went to see, who was a rheumatologist. He was amazing. And he, I feel like this, this physician's assistant, both she and this rheumatologist, the two of them really changed the direction completely and got me on the right path.
1: All right. So let's build out first the physician's assistant before I have Matt begin to talk with you about the rheumatologist. When the physician's assistant first mentioned Lyme, um, did that sort of ring a bell for you. Did it did you did you think back to this bullseye rash you had and some of the conversations you had in the past that had been ignored by other healthcare providers?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. I told her that. I eventually showed her the photo of the bullseye rash. Um, I I had let her know, you know, the entire history that I was in, that I showed this to a doctor and that I specifically mentioned Lyme disease. And she couldn't believe that in that situation, no one had even run a test. I mean, it was just unbelievable.
1: So when the PA ran the test, Mm -hmm. um, what test did she run and what were the results?
2: Um, I don't remember which test she ran. I remember her saying she was going to run a a fairly comprehensive test that looked for both Lyme and co-infections. Everything was negative. And in fact, I I tested negative for Lyme eight times before finally getting a diagnosis about five months later.
1: Okay, so... um, how did you feel when your physician's assistant mentioned Lyme, it rings true to you, you show the picture of the bullseye rash, you're now starting to believe that you're getting closer to a diagnosis, and the credit test you take comes back <laughs> with a negative result?
2: You know, hearing, hearing the physician's assistant mention Lyme, it was, it was a whole mix of feelings, you know, and all, all through it, I'm, I'm terrified. Because I'm getting sicker and sicker. I have no idea what's wrong. So I really think that I would have been so happy and relieved to have been told anything. You just want the answer at that point. Um, So hearing her start to speak about Lyme and and that she tested me for Lyme, in that moment, I thought, oh, my God, this is it. This is going to be it. This is going to be the thing. And then we can figure out how to fix the thing, how to treat the thing. Um, And then I get the negative test result. And I'm thinking, oh, it's not the thing. So, you know, you have that little bit of hope there for a minute or two, and then you're knocked right back. Um, But fortunately, she didn't give up on me. And then that's what led me into seeing another doctor.
0: So, who was it who ran the subsequent testing? Was it your physician's assistant who ran the additional tests? Or was this when you were now with your rheumatologist, when you ran your test two through eight?
2: Um, It started with the physician's assistant. She was the first.
0: And did she tell you that the tests weren't great, and that's why she was going to run a second test?
2: Um, yes, yeah, she did say that they're not always accurate. So at that time, that's all I knew, that that you know it could be a false negative.
0: So walk us through what it was like now working with this rheumatologist, because it sounds like the rheumatologist is the person who really introduced you to the world of a Lyme literate medical doctor and really got you down the path to a proper diagnosis and a proper treatment plan. So... What was that like seeing this rheumatologist who now is opening up your eyes to this whole world of Lyme literate medical doctors?
2: It, it was, <laughs> so my, my husband takes me to this appointment and we meet this wonderful doctor. And what I love so much about him is, aside from the fact that he actually listened, and of course he, he knew what he was talking about, he actually said to us at one point during the appointment, he said, I wanna, if you don't mind holding on for a minute, I wanna talk to one of my colleagues. I wanna give a colleague a call. He said, because seeing the bullseye rash, hearing your symptoms, hearing what's going on, this is textbook Lyme disease. And he called called one of his colleagues and the colleague didn't think anything of it. They did not think it was Lyme disease. And he came back and he said, I can't let this go. This is textbook. I wanna do additional testing because you often get false negatives. I wanna test you for additional co-infections. He said, and we will get to the bottom of this. And he said, unfortunately, sometimes ego gets in the way of a patient being properly diagnosed and treated. Um, he also started me on a regimen of doxycycline. He said, I want you to start taking this this medication while we're working to figure this out because he really felt that it was that it was tick-borne, that it was Lyme or tick-borne disease. And so I
0: find, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I find so interesting about that is. Your all of your doctors that you've gone to from the point you got sick to the point now you're with your rheumatologist, not one of them thought Lyme until your physician's assistant. And then Mm -hmm. even then, no doctor said to you, hey, look, even according to the CDC, we can issue you a clinical diagnosis because you had a bullseye rash and all of the classic Lyme disease symptoms. So you're living in Pennsylvania, you had a bullseye. If all the symptoms, I just don't understand why none of these doctors that were even Lyme woke, right? They were somewhat Lyme educated. Why didn't they say, hey, Jill, I'm going to give you a clinical diagnosis treaty? you? Like, why do you think that is?
2: I, I have no idea. I, I don't know. It just, to me, it just seems like a lack of, I would think, a lack of education about Lyme and tick-borne illness.
0: Yeah, but I, I feel like with your rheumatologist, he... Well, I guess in his case, he knew you had Lyme disease and he treated you before you even had a positive test. So he sort of was unofficially clinically diagnosing you and treating you with doxy before he punted mm-hmm. you over to Lyme litter doctor, correct? Yes. Okay. So when you did all these tests, how many of the, I mean, did you ever think like, how can I possibly be have Lyme? I had eight negative tests. Did you doubt this diagnosis? That's kind of wild, right? I mean, it's just crazy.
2: I, I did think that. And I remember, um, the, the, the doctors, they did want to keep testing. They, they did want to take another and then another. And they said that the timing is very tricky depending on when the test is taken compared to when you were infected. And I just, uh, one of the tests that eventually came back also it, it tested positive for a co-infection. And, you know, that eventually confirmed the rest of it, but but which, yeah, I mean, which
0: co-infection, Jill? I'm sorry to drop again, but would you recall which co-infection?
2: Oh, um, so it's Lyme with Bartonella and Babesia, and Babesia is what showed up on the test. But even then, I had doctors saying, "Well, it looks like this is something that was just a past infection." I mean, it it, it just seemed like anything to deny <laughs> that this was what it was.
0: So mm-hmm. more controversy controversy in the Lyme world, right? I mean, we've talked to some yeah. of the leading doctors about IgG versus IgM. Typically, an IgM means a current infection, an IgG means a past infection. But we've had the leading Lyme experts, and even researchers from universities tell us that an IgG can mean an active infection. So I think it's, it's another false belief by doctors that if you have an IgG positive blood result, it means that, oh, hey, it's just it's a past infection. You have nothing to worry about. Do you think that's sort of um, a problem that you encountered while getting tested?
2: Yeah, I do. I think that that might have been looking back now, knowing what I know now, that I had no idea about then. I, I do think that came into play.
0: So it's just so interesting that you're again you're 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 going down this path. You have now a questionable Babesia diagnosis, and now you're going to your your Lyme litter doctor. So how did you find the Lyme litter doctor, and are you comfortable sharing the name of this Lyme litter doctor that you decide to go treat with?
2: Um. Well, I found the doctor. Um. I had found a uh, a Bucks County support group that I went to, and I spoke to the leader of that group at the time, and she was able to provide me information about Lyme literate doctors. She explained to me what one is, because I had never heard that term before, and I was seeing a Lyme literate doctor in New Jersey.
0: So before we get into more detail about this Lyme literate medical doctor, you were given doxycycline by your rheumatologist. When you started taking the doxy, did you feel anything? Did you feel better, worse, or really the same?
2: Um, I didn't, I didn't feel any worse at first. Um, And, and again, looking back, I think, I think I wasn't having, you know, a Herx reaction or anything like that because I I probably, you know, needed a higher dose, which I was eventually put on. Um, But um, yeah, so I I felt pretty much the same.
0: Do you recall the dose, Jill, of doxy you were given by the rheumatologist? Not to put you on Uh, the spot or anything, right?
2: (laughs) I know, no, no, I, I, you know what, I, I actually don't recall the dosage, but I know that when I came to meet with a Lyme literate doctor, that dosage, it was doubled to be effective. Yeah.
0: And also you had Babesia, which isn't treatable with doxycycline. So you have a Babesia diagnosis by your rheumatologist, and he's still giving you doxycycline to treat your Lyme and Babesia when Babesia is not treated with with doxy. So again, that is just another conflict in my mind. In Pennsylvania, you are the leading state in the country with Lyme cases, and yet they don't even know how to read a proper test You know, when you get tested for Lyme and co-infections, nor how to properly Mm -hmm. treat a co-infection, which is wild, right? It just shows yeah. how much work we have to do here. So when you went to your Lyme litter medical doctor and he realized the dose you were on was not adequate, did he proceed with the doxycycline and up it to double the dose? Did he introduce anything else? What was the plan, the adjusted plan now with the Lyme litter medical doctor?
2: Oh, so once I saw the Lyme litter medical doctor, um, she agreed that I needed to be on the doxycycline. She upped the dosage. Um, I was told that that would also help somewhat with the Bartonella. And she wanted to get that under control a bit before hitting the babesia.
0: So, Joe, were you ever given anything for the babesia specifically? Generally, there's you know there's other medication that aren't antibiotics given for babesia, mm-hmm. whether it's in the Western world or the Eastern world, you know, natural or, or pharmaceutical, or it was just a doxy at this point?
2: Um, at it, initially to start, it was only the doxycycline and supplements. Okay, and then eventually, I, I was on something different for the for the babesia.
0: So I'm going to back up a little bit again, because I do want to ask you before you found the line literate medical doctor, was there anything you were doing just by chance or research or just, you know, for out of desperation that was giving you symptom relief before you had a big picture of what was really going on in your body?
2: Yeah, no, I, I really wasn't because with the timing, I was just finding out this is what it is. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, if we had discovered this almost a year ago, I would have been that much better off. So I really didn't know what to do. So I was, it was this combination of dealing with these horrendous symptoms, trying to function, still being terrified of what was going on and trying to do as much research as I possibly could to learn all about this, this whole new world that was just brand new for me trying to figure out, okay, what else could I be doing? Do I need to be eating differently? Do I need to be taking supplements and just trying to put all the pieces together, which of course the, you know, my line letter, a doctor helped me to do.
0: So for time context here, you were bit in May of 2017, and then you were sick in March of 2018. So about 10 months from the time of the tick bite to symptom onset, right? The the rapid symptom onset, Mm -hmm. but you had a bullseye rash. So you could have treated then and avoided the the rapid symptom onset 10 months later, but then it took you another five months to get diagnosed. Now we're looking at about 15, 16 months in from the time of the tick bite when you're starting to get treatment, correct?
2: Correct. I mean, I was actually back in 2007. So it was 2007. And then not not um, having then, symptoms until yeah, but yes. I'm sorry, yes. But, no, 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 but yes, that much time. That's how much time went by before I even got on the right track and started proper treatment.
0: And so many clues along the way that could have prevented this. That's that's the recurring theme here, right? I mean, the bullseye rash, all the symptomology, I mean the the the, the Babicia part of it, right? I mean, all this stuff. You're living in Pennsylvania, right? I mean, it's just wild. Yeah. But I do want to, you know, you, you talked about, you know, all, all of the angst and you know, the the fear of getting a diagnosis. One of the things we talked about last week on our podcast that really stuck with Rich and I is the role fear plays in making logical decisions and the role the nervous system plays, right? So when I was really sick, my nervous system was haywire. I was in a constant state of fight or flight, and therefore I wasn't able to make proper logical decisions, despite the fact that I knew I wasn't doing what I needed to do. So were you at a point 15 months in when you got your diagnosis that you felt you weren't being logical and maybe you were in fight or flight? Or were you fortunate enough to be able to make sound decisions and take steps forward without this fear-driven um, mindset that you could have potentially had?
2: You know, I think, I mean, there was definitely so much fear going on. And I can totally relate to what you just said, where you are in this fight or flight. And I'm, I'm very lucky that I had my husband there with me to help me advocate. And I think that is crucial to have that person, because especially dealing with something like Lyme disease and tick-borne illness, like you said, there are those times you're in such a state You're not thinking clearly, you know, it's like everything's fuzzy, you're trapped in this fog, you're trying to get better. Um, So having someone who can speak for you, having someone who, who knows what's going on and who can advocate on your behalf, if and when you can't, is is crucial. And that really came into play for me.
0: So now you're, I guess I have to ask also, because a lot of times when we're this sick, especially for, you know, going on almost two years and a lot of doctors early on told you it's just anxiety. They said, you're making it up. They said, this is a woman problem, right? They're basically gaslighting you beyond beyond belief. Did your husband ever doubt that you were truly sick? Did he ever believe that it was purely psychological?
2: God, no, never. Not, I mean, not for a moment. I mean, like I said, anyone, you didn't even have to know me. If you saw me, and, I, and I'm sure you're familiar and probably might have gone through the same thing, it was clear as day that something was very, very wrong.
0: So why do you think it is that, I mean, your husband obviously knew because he knows you, but your husband, yeah. who is a is a logical, rational third party, and here you are being a sick patient, and you said you couldn't even walk through the bathroom, right? Which I can personally relate to that statement, why do you think doctors continue to say, and I know Rich asked you this, but I want to kind of lean on you a little harder because you were yeah. saying you think maybe doctors aren't educated enough. But even if doctors aren't educated enough, they have to know that something is really physically wrong. Why do you think they, oh, they 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 fell on the whole psychological piece? And in my mind, it's more not that they're not educated, but maybe they were lazy and it was an ego piece of it because I have no idea what is wrong with Jill. She's clearly physically unwell, but I've run every test I've done everything I've learned in my career. And I don't know what it is. I'm just going to chalk this off as a psychological condition because I don't know. I mean, do you think there was a piece of that? Because I think it's deeper than just a lack of education in your case, because you were so clearly, you know, visibly, physically unwell.
2: Yeah, I think, I, think, uh, I think that definitely came into play. I think ego definitely came into play. I clearly remember feeling that because, you know, specific doctors couldn't answer the question and couldn't solve the riddle. It was on me. I mean, to have... <laughs> <laughs> to have a doctor look me in the eye and say to me, it's women's stress. I mean, I, I, I'm not a violent person at all, but I'm telling you if, if I had the ability, I've never wanted to drop kick someone in my life. Like I did in that moment. I mean, it was just unbelievable. And yeah, I do feel that way. There was this dismissive condescending attitude, And to, to put out there that someone, anyone who is dealing with this and who is so physically ill is simply stressed or looking to get out of work. I mean, it's, it's terrible. And I, and I feel that, you know, any, any doctor worth having is gladly going to listen to you and answer your questions and help, you know, inform you and help find the answers. And I think that if someone is, is pulling this, this gaslighting type of nonsense, that's when you need to run and go find a reputable medical professional.
0: Well, I want to very aggressively dropkick every single doctor that did this to you as well. So you were not alone in that statement, Jill, I just have to tell you, and I mean aggressively. So I, yeah, and now I want to ask, you know, the, the financial component yeah. of this, right? Because mm-hmm. you were working in the pharmaceutical industry. You were forced to, to leave that job because you were so unwell. Uh, I'm, I'm guessing your husband was working, but what financial impact did this have? And now seeing a line of their doctor that probably wasn't covered by insurance, how were you able to afford all this while you were so sick and no longer working?
2: It, I mean, it was, <laughs> it was a huge financial burden. And, and you're right, I, I was able to stay on short-term disability. And as soon as it got to the point where it would transition to long-term and you have to provide additional documentation, I lost my job. I was, I was terminated for job abandonment. And I, I had a stack of documentation about two inches high proving everything. And I remember speaking to someone from the insurance company who said, well, you know what, (laughs) you have a desk job. So, I mean, if you could sit here talking on the phone with me, you should be fine going to work. And again, you know, dropkick once again, but so I I lose this job, I lose my income. And yes, I have a a Lyme literate medical doctor who, you know, the out-of-pocket expense is astronomical um, depending on what you need as a patient. And, and that's, that's such a, uh, it's, it's infuriating to me that you have patients who are dealing with the illness. So you, you have the physical illness itself, which can be debilitating as you guys know. And then on top of it, you have this, this emotional component and the mental side of it. It's, I always think of it. It's like, to me, it feels like it's a battle within a battle. That's always how I've thought of it. It is It's this battle within a battle because you're desperately seeking answers. You need to know what the problem is. You need the right solution and the right treatment. And then all along the way, you're being told you're crazy, you're anxious, and all the gaslighting. And then on top of that, you have this financial burden that just crushes people. You're losing your jobs. People lose their homes, their cars, their everything, trying to pay for treatment, that insurance companies should be covering for these patients who are fighting debilitating illness. So it's, it's all this additional stress on top of everything else you're dealing with.
0: And Jill, I, Rich and I could not agree more that this is just horrible and completely wrong. And the fact that we can't get the care we need when we're at our worst is just unacceptable. But you, despite that persisted you, were, you found a way to go see a Lyme later doctor and you found a way to mm-hmm. get better. And now spearhead this amazing organization that we're gonna to get to in a little bit that Rich is gonna to speak to you about. But I do wanna ask you because this is a really important topic and we get this often. People are constantly commenting on our, on our social media content and sending us private messages and emails. Well, if I had the money, I could get better from Lyme disease. And, and look, my position is, It may be easier, but that's simply not true, right? I mean, look at Justin Bieber. And, and, Uh and, you know, look, I don't want to get to that debate whether it's Lyme or not, but we know his current condition is due to Lyme disease, right? Look at all these people. We have have so many people we can name that are millionaires, if not billionaires, that are still struggling and suffering Mm -hmm. from Lyme disease, right? So money alone will not get you better. So that's the first part of that argument. The second part of it is people out there who aren't celebrities with unlimited resources are getting better like you, Jill. You lost your job, but yet you still found a way to to finance this and to get better. So how would you respond to those comments, to those DMs we get to encourage somebody to say, hey, look, there is a way. Don't give up. Be creative. Find resources. We know it sucks. We know it's not right. But don't let this stop you from getting your health back because that's the most important thing in life is to get your health back. And how would you combat that that argument there?
2: I think and it's tough. And, and I agree. It's, it's not a matter of if you're so you have money, you're better. In fact, I was listening to your interview with Ali Hilfiger. I listened to that. And I remember you talking to her about that same issue where it's not just, oh, if you have money, you, it's easy. It's, it, there's, you know, it's, um you know, and it's certainly, I, I'm not in that type of position. So it was a huge struggle. I mean, my husband and I, we, we watched our, our savings go down to practically nothing. I mean, it was, I don't want to think about what would have happened if I didn't start to finally heal and be able to go back to work. Um, I, I felt lucky that, that, you know, like you said, my husband was still working full time and we had that income. We've always been responsible <laughs> with, with, with our earnings. So we, we had a lot of savings, but that's not the case for everyone. And so much time is wasted. Nobody should lose their job in the first place over this. And, and that's, that's something that comes to mind. Nobody should be losing their job in the first place over it. And these are treatments that should be covered. So the fact that people have to deal with this in the first place is just mind boggling. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, there, whether there are resources out there where, where people could try to, um, to get financial assistance, um, you know, I, I've helped a lot of people, you know, leading them to those resources and it's just a, it's just, it's a tough road and, and just to have that financial burden on top of everything else.
0: Jill, not to put you on the spot again, but you're just really smart and I keep putting you on the spot. I'm sorry for doing this, but what are, what are some of these Lyme grant resources out there for people that are listening? I mean, we, we know there's Avril Levine Foundation, there's the Lyme mm-hmm. Light Foundation for Children, there's the Lyme Fight Foundation, right? I mean, we have Ride Out Lyme by Brandy Dean. Are you mm-hmm. familiar with any other resources out there that can, people can go and apply for these grants to get treatment funding if they're, if they're financially struggling in their Lyme journey?
2: Um, well, well, those that you just mentioned, um, several of those were the ones that I'm familiar with. Um, I know in Pennsylvania, I believe Sam Spoons um, does uh, grant money um, and uh, and that's, you know, great for for those in Pennsylvania. I mean, that's a fellow Pennsylvania organization. Uh, yeah. So they there. We- thank goodness there are there's that help out there for people.
0: Sam Spoons, we—I can't believe I forgot Sam Spoons. Carrie Perry's a friend mm-hmm. of ours, and and um, she's co-hosted several interviews with us, and been on the podcast with her daughter. Yeah. So, uh, yes. The, the, so there are there are resources, and I think I also want to highlight that there are things people can do at a, at a reasonable rate. We don't have to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars. There are things we can try that are that are relatively inexpensive too. And and I just would encourage people to look at those things if they're considering treatment and not you know really having the resources to to do that. So. But let's go back to your, your treatment, right? So when you went to the line doctor, you doubled your doxycycline dose, and now you are what? Are you still feeling the same? Or now, oh boy, that herx is going to kick in because you're finally getting a double <laughs> dose that you should have had in the beginning, right?
2: Oh yeah, it was, uh, it was like getting hit by a truck. It, it, got, it got much worse before it started to get better, which I was informed would be the case. Um, I, I learned that because my infection had been lying dormant, for so long, it was, they believe it was pretty much, it was back building. So when it surfaced, and I, I, I don't know why it decided to surface when it did, but when it did, it, it packed a punch. Um, so I was fairly warned <laughs> that it would likely get worse before it got better. I learned about uh, the dreaded Herxheimer reaction and have lots of experience with that. Um, and I just had to, you know, buckle up and, and just get through it. Um, and I, I think the worst of that, once I started treatment, I think it was, I was treating for, I think about a year and it was probably at least a good, I want to say eight months of that, maybe that that was the most challenging before I really started to feel small improvements that, that stuck where it wasn't just, okay, I feel a little bit better today. And then it's, it's God awful tomorrow. Um, so it was, it was a long journey. I mean, from the time I was infected to the time they figured out what the heck was going on to getting proper treatment and getting through the worst of that. Um, it's a, it's a long road for so many people.
0: So it's about a one year period approximately before you had lasting symptom relief. It sounds like.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: You know, I do want to, you said something that stuck out for me and, and, I know we can see each other, but our listeners can't. When you said it was a, you know, the Lyme disease was back building because it was dormant, right? And you kind of did this hand gesture where to (laughs) me it implied it was like stacking, right? It was like a stacking hand gesture. And I think that's a really cool word to describe how Lyme can be dormant and just really wreak havoc until you have a moment where you crash. And your defining moment was you were at work and all of a sudden that switch was that it was just it just flipped right and you were just like I'm sick and it just hit you like 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 crazy so what do you mean when you say it was back building you know if you can give us a little more detail I think it's an interesting concept to think about Lyme being dormant and this kind of growing danger building up on our bodies
2: I mean so what I had learned and of course I'm not a medical professional but just something that I had learned from the doctors who were helping me um, was that it's possible that you have this infection and it's dormant but then it can start becoming active, but in such a gradual way where the bacteria could be multiplying and you have a much more significant bacterial load so that when it does hit, now you're dealing with, with so much more. And then when you do start treating, your body is dealing with that much more toxicity. And then therefore the intense Herxheimer reactions as your body tries to detox and it just snowballs.
0: So the more pathogens you have, the more Lyme spirochetes and the more, you know, Babesia, et cetera, the, the more you kill it, the more you're going to have die off, the more you're going to have inflammation, the more you're going to have an extreme herx, basically what you're saying, correct? Correct. So what, what were you doing anything to help with the emotional toll? Because I know for me, herxing, and for many of us herxing, not only is it a physical herx, but we can emotionally and mentally herx, meaning we have depression, anxiety, we have fear we have irrational thoughts, right? We have Mm -hmm. some people get suicidal ideolations. Were you doing anything beyond the doxy to help with the emotional and mental side of the Herxing?
2: Um, Well, so for the mental side, something that my doctor had recommended, she said, you know, I know you want to be up on what's going on in the world, but for right now, you've just got to focus on you. So she told me, don't watch the news. You know, she goes, at least not, you know, don't You don't want to be in all the negativity happening in the world. So she recommended just stay away from the news for now, stay away from reading anything negative, you know, try to stick to positive things. Um, Trying to think what else there might've been just, you know, it was just a lot of the simple things, just having, you know, being around the people in my life who understood and who supported me. And sometimes just, you just need that person who's there for you and the, the tiniest little things, um, helped me. And, and I don't know if your listeners will relate to this. I'm sure a lot of people probably can, but I mean, my husband, I, (laughs) he was amazing. He, he'd be at work some nights and I'd be at home terrified. I don't think I locked my front door the entire time I was sick because I was convinced that I was going to have to call nine one one, and I didn't want them to have to break it down. But even just, you know, my husband, Matt being at work and, and he would just text me these silly, ridiculous photos, just anything to make me laugh, anything to make me feel human. And, you know, when you're going through such drastic physical challenges, I know it might seem a little silly to think, oh yeah, like a silly picture is going to help you. But when it comes to the mental aspect, I truly believe that just anything that allows you to hold on to, to your identity in a way you just, I, I mean, for me, it's like, I, I really felt like I lost myself. I, I felt like I. It was just a shell of who I was. You just you lose your identity, you lose who you are, and you know. I remember there was one moment, and I, I can remember like it was yesterday. I was standing in my kitchen, looking out the doors, just thinking, "Is this it? Is this the best it's going to get? Because if this is it, and this is going to be my life from here on out, I I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this anymore. If there's not if there's no light at the end of the tunnel, what am I going to do? Um, but For me, suicide wouldn't be an option. And which of course leads to this incredible feeling of just being trapped. You're just trapped in this nightmare. Um, So the mental and emotional aspect of of these types of illnesses, it's it's just so immense. It's so tough to deal with. So anything big or small, (laughs) I think that would help me or anyone just feel grounded, more in touch with who you are, positivity, staying around people who support you. Any little bit helps and getting support if you need it. If you need to see a therapist, if you need to go to support groups, just being around other people who understand you're so used to people gaslighting you and telling you you're nuts. So just finding people who, who get it and you realize that you're, you're really not alone in it, even though it's absolutely awful. You're not alone in it and don't give up because you'll get better. You can get better.
0: You know, this is such an important message. And, you know, you just described the battle within the battle brilliantly, right? I mean, the battle is the infections, right? The the, uh-huh. the pathogens and the battle within the battle is the emotional and um, the emotional and mental toll this takes on you. And I think, you know, the, that feeling of being trapped when you said that I got the chills because I mean, that's, that's something I think we're going to relate to. You feel trapped. You're not getting better. You're getting sicker and sicker and sicker and nobody can help you. And what do you do? Right. So the fact that you just gave us all these little things, but collectively together, they can help you get through it and get to the other side. And I know, again, our listeners can't see us, but as you're describing it, I was, I was smiling. And the reason I was smiling is because you were showing how sick you were. But I mean, I'm, I'm looking at where you are today. I mean, you know, you've made significant improvement and we're going to get to the tr- this, this brilliant transformation and how much better you are today. But you're just another great story of somebody who was completely taken down by this disease and was able to overcome it and now give back to the community. So that's such a beautiful part of your story to tell people don't give up, have hope, you can get better. So the other part of this I do want to discuss is, I mean... In this one year period, you mentioned that you were doing supplements as well. And I know oftentimes these lime litter doctors will give us tinctures, they'll give us all kinds of stuff, and it's, it's hard to keep up with what we're being given. But do you recall any of the supplements or herbs, et cetera, that you were on besides the antibiotics and you know how and if they helped you?
2: Oh, looking back, let's see. I just remember a lot of pills. Um, I know I was on a probiotic. I think it, at different points in time, I was on different things. I think I remember Cat's Claw at one point. I remember something. I don't even know if it's still around. Was it called Nanotech Chitticin? It was, there was something, there was bromelain. Um, and then there was something else that I, I think was, was it ground up earthworm? Do you know what I'm talking about? There was that supplement.
0: I've never heard uh, of ground up earthworm, but that sounds really interesting. I'm Googling as we're talking. <laughs>
2: Which, you know, at the time, if someone said here have, you know, ground up earthworm in a pill, I want to run but when, when you're that sick, it's, you know, you do anything but this. so there were, um, there were others too that I'm not, I don't remember at the moment, but I mean I was probably taking at least 20 some pills a day, at least.
0: So I think Marty Ross, who a lot of us have heard of it looks like from a Google search is the one who recommended the ground up earthworms right and he's saying. Um, you know, some people say they can be helpful. Some people say they can't be helpful. And it's probably one of those, those things, you know, like, like everything with Lyme disease, there's not enough research to show what can help and what can't, but if it's not that risky, why not give it a try to see if we can get better, right? Is, is the thought right. behind it. So is there any that stand out though, that really helped you be on the antibiotics or when I took this supplement or I took this tincture, I took this herb it really helped me feel good, or it made me hurt or anything like that noteworthy that you want to share?
2: Um, you know what I think? I don't remember one in particular standing out. And I think because I was on so much at once. I, I don't know, I don't know if it was one or a combination that was helping, um, um vitamin D3. That was a big one.
0: Were that with?
2: I, I would say energy. I think that was, that was big with energy.
0: So one of the things that stood out also was the whole component of your doctor saying, don't watch the news, simplify your life. And, you know, Ali Hilfiger talked about, she really had to simplify her life and, mm-hmm. and allow our body to heal without, without having all of this complicated st- you know stimuli etc but you also mentioned support groups and community and networking which to me is a double-edged sword right because oftentimes the community is the group that can help you the most from a validation standpoint from a rec- from a tip and recommendation and protocol standpoint as well but then there are there's a side of it where you know a lot of us that are going through this are struggling and that's that struggle and that that part of it can really, wear on us, right? So some of these support groups are really helpful and healthy. Some of them are really, I, to put it nicely, Debbie Downers, right? So how did you balance that networking in the community, especially now with the PA lime group, right? Where mm-hmm. you're not sacrificing your own health while helping other people and also allowing other people in the community to help you?
2: You know, that that is such a good point, you know, to be saying not every, not every support community, you know, is going to be what you're hoping for. Um, you know, I remember in an online community, I had I'd posted somewhere once a long while back, and I remember someone saying, Oh, please, you think that's bad? Wait until you're in this situation, wait until you're taking 80 pills a day. Wait until and I'm thinking, okay, this isn't helping. And I never went back. <laughs> because so you bring up a really great point. And and I think it's I think it's finding the right people for you, for what you need. And then you know, people might need something different you know, maybe it helps one person to really talk about, to talk about their experience in, in one way and someone else just wants it positive and, and nothing else. So I think maybe we all need something a little different. Um, but that sense of community and that help I think is the common ground there. So yeah, it's, it's tough. So I don't know if, you know, whether it's just trying different support groups and finding what you need um, and joining up with PA Lime that that was a huge component for me that was the the big thing for me which was now that you know i'm out the other side do i want to get back into something where i'm going to feel like i am just drowning in all things lyme disease is it going to feel like i'm going to eat sleep breathe lyme disease all day long and how is that going to affect me and it was speaking to the people who were already in the organization Um, I had one-on-one calls with everyone at the time when I was coming on as a board member. And I asked that question to everybody. And I said, how, how do you do this without, you know, without becoming depressed, without going crazy. And they all said, it's just going through what we've been through. Um, I think, uh, one of my, uh, fellow board members from a while back Tina had said it, it puts, um, purpose to the pain is what she had said. It gives it all purpose. And that has always stuck with me. Um, so that's something that I love. It's just the the people who are part of this are, you know, they're in it for the right reason. And it's a it's a shared desire to just get out there and help people. And knowing yeah. what I know about it, I, I can't just not do anything and say, you know, good luck, everyone. Hope it works out for you. You want to get in there and do something.
0: So there's two sides to this, Jill. Right. And I'm just so conflicted because. You know, on, on one hand, I mean, who better to help the Lyme community than somebody like you who's been through it and give back and help, right? But then yeah. I get anxious because we've seen other people who said they've tried to get really deep into the community to help, but it's triggered a relapse because it's stressful, it's emotional, it, you know, it's, it's traumatic because it's, it's bringing back these deep memories of their personal experiences and, and it's making them sick again, Right. So we've had other people tell us like, hey, when I got better, I had to run away from the community because I cannot be in the community. It's triggering. It's I'm afraid for my health and I need to just embrace my life and step away. And, you know, I think both it's, it's hard to say, you know, and that may be a personal thing where, you know, some people can't dive back in like you could. But for you, I mean, you've been better. You've you've maintained your health and you're giving back to the community. And I think because you're not identifying with the illness and being sick, you're identifying with this transformation and turning, you know, and this whole purpose to pain concept, right? So um, I'm sorry, purpose to the pain, right? So in your, and I'm kind of stepping on Richard's toes here, but I'm just curious in this, in this period of working with the PA Lyme, has there ever been a moment or an event that has triggered you to have a health setback?
2: No, fortunately, no, there has not been. And, and I get, I get anyone feeling that way. Like when you said, you know, someone might just want to run away from all of this. I completely get it. And and for me in my situation, years passed in between. So I had time to be away from it all. I had that time to not be doing this. I don't think I could have done this right after, you know, starting to heal and, and achieving remission. I don't think it would have worked if i had jumped back into it i think it would have been too much um, but but no but there there are times when you know i've spoken to so many people people who reach out and you know they say hey can you hop on the phone with me and and that's probably the the closest you get to feeling this pull like you're almost getting pulled back in to those feelings and you start remembering the emotions because You're not just reading about it or writing about it or researching about it. You're speaking to another human being. And, you know, sometimes people are crying or they're angry and you hear you hear their voice. You hear the emotion. And that really takes you back into it. But the reason it's so worth it for me is to be able to help someone. I wish I could have had somebody to call who knew about it. I wish I would have had these resources in that moment. Um, I wish I would have had you know, the, the blueprint. I've seen your blueprint, your tick pipe blueprint. I wish I had something like that when I needed it. Um, so there are times doing this type of, of work that it kind of pulls you back in, but we also each prioritize our health and know that we can't be doing this if we're not taking care of ourselves.
0: So that was just a great, I know Rich is gonna talk deeper about, about that with you. And I, I just wanna step back for a second. And I just want to tell you, as an aside, I wish I had a Jill when I was sick. I mean, honestly, so I get why you do it. I mean, if I had a Jill when I was sick, you would have shortcut my journey significantly, Jill. So I just want to share that with you. And and I, Rich and I so appreciate all the work you're doing to give back to the community. And, and we're just so thankful to that. But my final question before Rich does pick up and go on a little bit further on this topic with you is, just talk to us about that remission period, right? Because it sounds like after a one-year course of double doxy with all these supplements and cat's claw and all of these things you were doing, you were in a good place. So was it, was it after the one-year one period you reached remission or was it shortly after? I give us an idea as to when you finally feel you were over Lyme disease and, and, and you've, you've defeated it and you entered remission.
2: Um, so it's funny, because in some ways, I I don't feel like I ever did beat it. (laughs) In some ways, I don't feel like I ever did get back to normal. But just in terms of being able to get a life back, being able to work again. um, So I think, what did I say was it about like, maybe eight heavy duty, intense months once treatment began, um, where I, you know, wound up in the ER a few times, because of just crazy Herxheimer reactions. um, And then past that point, and once treating the babesia properly i started to feel it's not that i felt well but i felt the lessening of my symptoms where suddenly i realized oh i could read a little bit if i'm reading you know a magazine with just really short paragraphs with text that's spaced apart or i could do this i could do that so little by little or oh i can actually walk out across the street to the mailbox which i could never do so it was just baby steps. So I think maybe at around that one year mark, I would guess, is when I st- I certainly didn't feel healed or that I was officially in remission, but I did feel that I was able to start doing things that I couldn't do before. Um, and I started feeling like myself again a little bit. And then treatment went on for a bit longer. And um, you know, it still took some more time, but I was able to do things at you know, whether 40%, 50%, but I was able to start doing them again.
1: So Jill, if you were to look back at the uh, young woman who was diagnosed with Lyme disease um, and you had the benefit of all of what you've now learned, what would you say to her?
2: Oh God, there's, (laughs) there's, there's a lot. I would say one of the biggest things for me, it would have been, Speak up, speak up. Do not be afraid to question a doctor because you're thinking, oh, well, who am I to do that? They're the expert. Um, if I had followed my gut and spoken up and done research right in that moment, things I, I think would have gone much differently for me, much better. Um, uh, what else in terms of what I would say? How
1: I- And, and largely what I'm asking you is, you know, are there some things that you would have done differently if you had the benefit of the experience that you had? Are there things you would have done that you didn't uh, do? Are the things that you did do that you wouldn't have done? Is there any change yeah. in order in anything you would have done?
2: Yeah, I think I, I, I would have from that first appointment when I got back and I had that picture of that bullseye rash, I would not have taken you're fine for an answer. I would I would never take that for an answer. I would have questioned it. I would have pushed back. I would have immediately sought a second opinion and a third and a fourth and a twentieth if I had to. I just would have kept going then, and I would have avoided becoming chronic. Um, and in terms of I, what I anything that I did that I wish I hadn't. I mean, again, I think it was just the, for me speaking up in that moment and confidently advocating for my health would have changed everything. It would have completely changed my entire story with this.
1: Let's talk a little bit about the grief cycle, because when you're going through these challenges, you are clearly going to grieve, right? You're going to grieve yeah. the loss of what you've lost. You're going to gr- grieve the loss of your identity You're going to grieve the loss of of the person. Right. Mm-hmm. So talk to us about the grief cycle where you um, you first went through denial. Um, you then after going through denial, you were angry, uh, went through a, stage where you were sad or maybe even depressed, um, Hmm. you bargained and then finally got to acceptance. Talk to us about the cycle and how important it was to go through the entire cycle to get to your point where you got to acceptance before you could create something new.
2: Oh, you know, that's interesting. I have to think about this for a second and, and those different stages. I mean, the, the grief of just, you know, I, I, uh, it's hard to break it out in those stages because thinking about how it was when you're in it, it's you don't really see it. So I'm trying to look back and remember. Um, but definitely that period of feeling like the grief of, you know, I'm losing my health. I, I truly believed I was going to lose my life. Um, and even when I knew I could get better, it was just a loss of identity, a loss of being able to function. It's like I was grieving. I guess who I was, it was just a complete loss of my life and and all of it, and and definitely anger came into play. Am I going in the right order? I have to learn this, <laughs> this cycle. Um, I mean, lots of anger, anger at myself for not having questioned things from the start, um, anger at all the doctors who, you know, who just treated me as less than for whatever reason, um, just anger for, you know, I just, I was mad that My husband had the weight of all this on his shoulders, who was working full time, constantly taking me either to the hospital or the blood lab or this or that. It was so much stress on other people. Um, uh, What was the next stage?
1: Talk to us about about sadness. And and did your sadness Uh, ever, ever, ever turn into depression?
2: um, You know, I, I don't know. I wouldn't be surprised if it had, I mean, I, I remember I would, uh, you know, we have a guest bedroom upstairs and I, you know, I would sit, we have a little sectional and I would look out the back window and I would see on a nice day, I would see people walking. I would see, you know, whether it's kids skateboarding, people riding their bikes. I'd see people of all ages out there jogging, being active. And I I remember feeling like I I was just watching everything go by. And I was always just still in that window. And I, I remember feeling like Almost like there was this moving sidewalk and it might sound really corny, but it felt like this, that life was this moving sidewalk and everyone was just moving along and progressing. And I somewhere along the way got booted off and I'm lying injured, (laughs) you know, maybe, you know, 20 feet away watching everyone else moving on and I'm just stuck. Uh, But yeah, I mean, I would, I would stare out that window and I would see people. I remember the one day I saw an older couple, they were walking and holding hands. And I remember bursting into tears and just thinking what I wouldn't give to just be able to go and take a walk with my husband, Matt and hold hands and just talk about, you know, the latest Marvel movie that's coming out or just, you know, any little thing. Um, so there's, Lots and lots of sadness. Yeah.
1: So talk to us about how you got out of the sadness and ultimately moved to the bargaining phase where you were bargaining either with yourself, with God, whoever you would be bargaining with to help you to get out of uh, the challenges that you were facing with your illness.
2: I think that was probably when I started to feel better. Um, It took me a long time to believe that I would get better. I remember my husband would say to me, you know, you will get better. You just have to believe it. And I would say, well, do you believe it? And I could tell he really did. And, and I was just like, well, I'm not there yet. <laughs> I, don't, I don't believe it. And eventually I did. And somewhere between not believing it and believing it, I remember feeling like, oh, my gosh, if, if I get better, I'm going to change this. I'm, I'm going to do work in my life that actually matters to me. You know, I hated my job. I always felt like a number. I want to do things my way. I just I think I had a chip on my shoulder. It completely changes your perspective. You know, you just think, heck with everything. I'm, you know, let me get through this, and and I'm just gonna, you know, I'm gonna stop caring about this. I'm gonna start doing that, um, and then just finally getting there. And
1: so, when uh, you got there, when you when you finally got to the acceptance stage, mm-hmm. how did that change everything for you, and why did that really send you on the trajectory that you needed to go on in order to heal?
2: I think it just just everything shifted. I just had such a different perspective. Um, I still had a lot of anger about just what goes on with Lyme disease in the first place, you know, because by then I had educated myself and I realized what was happening and knowing this was happening to so many people, people who had it even much worse than I did. Um, And I just, I just wanted to focus on things that, that I enjoyed and, and not in a naive way, not to think I was going to, you know, skip through the tulips for the rest of my life and love every little thing about it and enjoy every little thing I do. There are things that we just have to do that we don't want to, but just take more control of my life and really try harder to make things work so that I could do things that truly were fulfilling to me.
1: So now you created something new, right? You couldn't get to creating something new until you got out of the grief cycle. And after acceptance, you created something new. And this is a stage where one of our former guests gave us a a new way of describing this, but it's your post-traumatic growth. And you started to touch on that earlier where uh, your post-traumatic growth put you in a position where you began to develop a heart for helping other people who had to face the challenges that were being imposed upon you uh, by the failures of the medical community. So talk to us about how that heart of yours developed and how you used your God-given talents to now um, make the changes that you're making as a, as a board member of that brilliant organization, the Pennsylvania Lion uh, Center.
2: Um, well, I, I remember um, the person who, who helped facilitate the support group that i gone to. She had reached out to me one day with an opportunity to be interviewed for an article about Lyme disease, and she's like, "I think you'll be good for this," and she set it all up. So um, I took part in that, and I thought this is a great opportunity—just to have a, just you know, be a small part of something that's going to help raise awareness about it. About it. So I did that, and that led to an opportunity to to, to um, have a pre recorded session, a pre-recorded segment for Good Morning America that further helped raise awareness. And then by the luck of it, and it's funny because we we still can't figure out, we don't remember exactly how it happened, but Julia Wagner, who is co-founder of PA Lime Resource Network, happened to reach out to me on LinkedIn. One of us reached out to the other. I think she had seen, she either read the article or she saw the Good Morning America segment and we got in touch. And I told her I've seen a bit of your organization; it's wonderful. And it just so happened they had an opening for a board member position. Um, so we talked and went through, you know, getting to know the people in the group, really understanding what they do and how, as part of this group, I can help and and be a part of this raising awareness and educating and just trying to do some good for our community. Um, so I joined up um, as a board member and. I am their VP director of social media and digital content, uh, which plays in nicely because now I, you know, I, I obviously, obviously no more pharma never again, that was never going to happen. And I started my own, uh, (laughs) I started my own copywriting business almost 10 years ago. And I'm just, I'm doing work that I love. And I'm with this organization that I love and people who are so passionate and, And it's, it's just been an incredible opportunity to help give back and, and not only just PA line, but just through that getting to know, you know, getting, getting to know the two of you and what, and what Tick Bootcamp does and getting to know these amazing people and all these other organizations where we're all striving to do the same thing um, and working together and collaborating a lot. It's just been incredible.
1: Talk to us about the professional growth. Now, you, you shared with us at the beginning of the podcast that you always enjoyed reading and writing, and that was your gift, right? You knew it was at an early age, even though you were trying to find your way that, that is really where you're always happiest and the most comfortable. And I was called you a geek earlier just to make fun of <laughs> you a little bit. But that's where you were from when you were a little girl. And it wasn't until you got to the creation of something new at the end of your Lyme disease journey that you went back to... Your love. You went back to the place where you were doing what you were created to do, and you started your copywriting business. That's about what gave you the strength to finally do that and come back home to um, giving, um, giving to the world what it is that you were you were made to give.
2: I I think I decided to do that. So once I was well enough to work, when I could physically handle going going to work, I actually did have two different. You know, I had two jobs. I had one that led to another that I did for a while. Um, they were close to home and I was able to, to get through it. But again, it was just the same feeling as before. Like we were talking about it. Just, it was just, it was a job. And I thought, you know what, after everything I've been through, I still had such a chip on my shoulder. I just thought, I don't want to be doing this. Um, so I thought, what's, what's something that I love. I really wanted to work with people one-on-one. I wanted to be doing something that actually means something to me. And I mean, it took me all of two seconds to figure out what that is. And I thought, all right, well, what can I make of this? So um, I went online, I did some digging and I set a deadline for myself and said, okay, I have to land a client by this date. I have to start bringing in income. And I set it up and fortunately I was able to do that. And then I've been building it from there. And it's just, um, you know, when we talk about the mental component and just how it can make such a difference, just switching from something, and my heart wasn't in to something that I truly love doing that makes such a difference. And, you know, I'm much more aware of, you know, of setting boundaries. I set boundaries now that I never would have thought, you know, almost like you need permission to set boundaries in your life. Now I do, or I know how much I have to really watch my health. I have to watch my stress levels. We all do. But I think for anyone dealing with this or any kind of chronic illness, it's, it's even a little more important to just, you know, you don't want to relapse, you don't want to flare up. Um, yeah, so I got back into this work that I love doing. And I love that it ties into my work with PA Line that I could bring some of that in um, and love doing it in a different capacity. And
1: yeah, yeah. so let's 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 talk about the boundaries for one more second before I get to the last section of my uh, okay. questions. And uh, one of the things we, we learned from uh, our guest co-host, Christina Gonzavalos, who we've been quoting a lot today, uh, is she talked about uh, a great book entitled When Your Body Says No. And essentially the premise of the book is, um, is that if you don't listen to your body, and you don't set boundaries and you continue to push things further than you have the capacity to to um you know push things ultimately your body will say no and you will have your crash and you will shut down and i think one of the beautiful gifts of going through a journey like the one that you had is that you understand what it means for your body to say no and you understand how vital it is to set boundaries. If you're going to remain healthy. So talk about that piece of having gone through a journey where your body said no, and you did crash and how that's now not only giving you permission, but it's also put you in a position you understand how vital it is to set boundaries to be emotionally and physically healthy.
2: It really is. It's really crucial, I think, to do that. And I think for anyone, but, but you know, it's, it's so often in the back of my mind, you know, what if, what if, you know, am I going to flare up is what I'm doing right now too stressful where I I think I'm okay today. And then tomorrow I'm going to find out that's not the case. Um, it's, it's really about just protecting, protecting my, you know, my time and my energy. I, you know, I don't have the energy that I did before. I don't, I don't think I've ever regained that fully. So it's really thinking about how I want to spend my time where I want to put the energy that I do have, and and being able to say no to something that, you know, before I think I was too people-pleasing, where I would just say, okay, 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 because I wanted to help people. And I realized that's just not going to work. So if I'm uncomfortable with pushing back and saying no, I'm going to have to get comfortable with it because it has to be done to protect my own health.
1: All right. So, but isn't, isn't it the truth that uh, being a people pleaser is actually dangerous? I mean, we don't think of it that way. We always think we're helping other people. And we think that by helping other people, we couldn't be doing something wrong. But when you're a people pleaser and you're always saying yes, even beyond the time when your body's saying no, that pushes you closer and closer to that point where you are crashing and your body is saying no. And had you not been sort of you know, through our culture or through socialization, put in a position where we're told we're not allowed to say no. Perhaps we would not have ever gotten to a point where we were um, we were uh, chronically ill.
2: Yeah, you know, you're right. I think it can be dangerous. It can be, and I don't think I ever would have thought that before. If someone said, "Oh, you know, someone's a people pleaser," I would never think that could be dangerous. Um, but you're right; it, it really can be because. I think the problem is, you know, you want to please everyone. And and to your point, where do you stop? Where does it stop? And where do you hit that wall where now you're out of commission again and all the people you're pleasing? Well, where are they? When now you're right back, you know, you could be back to square one. Um, Yeah, it's
1: it's. Part of the reason you've been able to stay healthy and after taking some time away from the community, now come back into the community and give so much to the community is because you've learned how to set boundaries. You've learned how to listen to your body. You've learned how to make sure that you're going to be physically and emotionally healthy. And that then puts you in a position where you can now use your gifts. You can now use your talents and you can now give back to the community.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And it was, it was something I had to learn to do. It didn't come naturally. Um, but being able to protect my time, um, and energy just really, really helps. And it's wonderful to be able to feel like on my terms, you know, I'm doing this work that I, that I really want to do. That's truly important to me. And, and, you know, within PA Lime resource network, what's so great is, I mean, we we're a group, we move quickly, we get things done, but we're all aware of the fact that we need to protect our own health and wellness. So if we need to take it down a little bit, we do. You know, if we're not okay, if I'm not okay, I can't do anything for anybody. Um, so I'm sorry, did I lose your question? No, no, you, you, you answered it
1: brilliantly. Not not at all. Right? There's a sort of ebb and flow, and your your organization has built within the structure of the organization the understanding of you have to be nimble, you have to move quickly, you have to. Do what you can do, but at the same time, you're going to have to also go through a process of healing and resting and, and and being gentle with yourselves and being gentle with each other. And, and, you know, and having a nimble organization that has that built into the DNA, I think is beautiful. And it's something that I think all organizations should, uh, should, uh, think about not just Lyme organizations, but all organizations. Yeah,
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. It's such an important component.
1: So now let me ask you the final question. We ask everybody on Tick Bootcamp. Um, You have that wonderful man, Matthew, who was there with <laughs> you through thick and thin. Those Matthews are good people. Um, even, even my Matthew is a good man. Uh, and uh, so loyal Matthew, uh, who was with you from through thick and thin, who even believed you were going to heal when you didn't believe you were going to heal, who always believed in you. God forbid Matthew comes walking into the room with a tick biting him so. right after this interview. What are you going to recommend to Matthew so that he doesn't have to go on a chronic Lyme disease journey?
2: Oh, my goodness. Okay. If that happens, there are, there are a few things that, uh, that I wanted to, first of all, first and foremost, I would check, I would tell him, you know, is the tick still attached? If you have a tick that's attached, you want to remove it. You want to take a photo of it and you want to send it out for free testing. Um, I would immediately schedule an appointment with a Lyme literate medical doctor so that if the tick is confirmed to be carrying Lyme disease or other tick-borne co-infections, you have that appointment in place. I would keep an eye on the area where the tick bite uh, took place. And you want to look out for any type of rash or any kind of marks. And you want to take a photo. Um, If something does develop, you want to take a photo and you want to keep an eye on it And you might want to take a photo every day because as you know, they, you know, a rash could expand outward. So you want to be able to show that to a doctor. Um, I would be tracking any symptoms, you know, note down any symptoms you experience and, and just to, to do it all quickly because the timing, as you know, is it's, it's crucial to get, to get this taken care of right away.
1: Jill Whitmer, you are an absolute blessing. We've really enjoyed interviewing you, and thank you so much for sharing all that you shared with the community. We call Tick Bootcamp.
2: Oh, thank you so much. I'm just so happy to be here and just to be a part of everything that you're doing. So thank you so much.
0: Thank you for listening to our Tick Bootcamp interview with our guest Jill Whitner. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Jill and the PA Lime Resource Network, please visit them on Instagram at pa.lime.resource.network. Second, if you've enjoyed this episode of our Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends on social media. Third, Tick Bootcamp has created a Tick Byte blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been shared with us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at tickbootcamp.com slash byte to view our blueprint. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on your podcast platform of choice. And finally, if you'd like to search our podcast library of over 250 episodes, subscribe to our email list, or share feedback with us, please visit our website at tickbootcamp.com. Thank you, as always, for listening.